So I was praying about what to share. I, I have the privilege of sharing, uh, of, of leading the men's ministry uh, here, which meets every first and third Tuesday of the month. So if you, if you don't go, that was somebody that does go, encouraging you to go next week. Um, and um, we're been starting the book of Philippians. And as I was studying to share, um, I felt like the Lord gave me like a, 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 an extra teaching and I thought, a third introduction to Philippians? I don't think the men can tolerate that. So then when Pastor Zach asked me to share, I'm like, oh, that's why the Lord gave me an extra teaching. So um, as we kind of uh, look at this, one of the things I think is really interesting, um, I'm looking up Nehemiah, which is surprisingly hard to find. Okay, I found it. It's good. It's still there. Um, the book of Philippians is written to us uh, I'm not, I'm not going to get into the book of Philippians, but this is just kind of uh, how I started, so we all have to start in the same place. Um, the book of Philippians was written um, to a church that Paul dearly loved and to a church that was generally doing well, a church that he trusted enough to receive gifts and uh, from them while he was ministering, which is not something that he did from other churches because some people just didn't have a heart that he could trust to give to him, you know? So for, from the Corinthian church, he'd say, listen, you guys keep your money. You know, I'm going to serve you and I'm going to work on the side so that I can support. But to the Philippian church, he received support from them while he was in Corinth, while he was in Thessalonica. And if you read through the book of, of first, uh, if you read through the whole book of Philippians in his letter to the church, um, there's so much um, love that he has for that church. But one of the themes that's reoccurring is uh, he keeps mentioning, I think, six times some form of the word joy in the book of Philippians. And, and so, it, you know, it would seem that here there's a danger, even for a strong church, even for a healthy church, maybe for a strong believer or a healthy believer, there, there's a danger of us forgetting the importance of having joy in our hearts. And, and Paul, concerned enough about that, he takes this whole book. So if, if maybe as we kind of go through this teaching and you think, um, man, I don't, I don't know if this is speaking to my heart. I think this is speaking to my heart. Well, I encourage you to read through the book of Philippians or go to men's meeting and we'll go through it. But also read through the book of Philippians because then you'll get it in stereo. But um, I wanted to stop and think a little bit about this idea of joy. What is it that the Lord speaks of when he speaks of joy? Is it an importance or a priority to him? Joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness is something that depends upon our circumstances. It depends on whether or not we have a good day or a bad day, whether we have bills to pay or whether all our bills are paid and we have a little bit left over. Those things all kind of affect our happiness. If our car breaks down, if we have a flat tire, you know, all those things may affect our happiness. But joy is different. The way that it's defined in the Bible, joy is a constant. Joy is supposed to be something that is at the bedrock of the Christian's life. Uh, there's a really long quote from G.K. Chesterton that I, I, I'm tempted to read, but I also know I shouldn't. But um, <clears throat> it, he talks about how for a Christian, our foundation is joy and our sorrows are superficial. Our sufferings, they come and then they go. But at the foundation, the constant is joy. It ought to be. But for the unbeliever, it's the other way around. There's, there's despair at the foundation and the joys come and go. There's times when, when it goes up, when there's a happiness, and then, and then that, that kind of diminishes. 
but, but they live their lives upside down. The way that it's supposed to be, the way that we were built to live is that foundation would be fundamental, that joy would be foundational to our, to our being. It would be fundamental to our being. And so the Lord has provided for that in Scripture. Um, joy is defined uh, as a passion or emotion. This is, uh, this is Webster's. Uh, Webster's 1828, though, so it's got extra a uh, couple hundred years on that. The, the passion or emotion excited by the acquisition or expectation of good. I've got something good, or I'm about to get something good. It's the excitement of pleasurable feelings, which is caused by success or good fortune, the gratification of desire or some good possessed, or a rational prospect of possessing what we love or desire. It's gladness, exaltation, exhilaration of spirits. One, one way to define it would be joy is the delight of the mind from the consideration of the present or assured approaching possession of a good. <clears throat> and if you, you want to kind of make your way to Nehemiah chapter 8, I'm eventually going to get there. Um, but it's going to be a little bit. So you have plenty of time to find it. But um, this idea of joy would be the, what's excited within your heart, within your mind, when you know that you've received something good or when you know that you're about to receive something good. And the reason why joy is spoken of as something that should be constant for us as believers is there's two reasons. One of them is it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the, one of the parts of the, of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is, is joy. That there should be this excitement that you have something good and that you're going to receive something good. That's a, a, a part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And then the other reason why it should be a constant in us as believers is because all of the sources of joy for us as believers are outside of our circumstances. Our circumstances can't do anything to affect the sources of joy for us as believers. It comes from God. It comes from our relationship with the Lord. And our circumstances can't affect our relationship with the Lord. But we can invest in our relationship with the Lord and, and as we invest in our relationship with the Lord, that ought to produce a greater and deeper joy in us. But I'm getting ahead of myself. If joy is this delight of the mind that comes from the possession of good or the coming possession of good, then as Christians, we have such a great relationship with goodness, don't we? In Psalm 84, verse 11, it says, The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The Lord is good, and the Lord will not withhold good from his people. In Psalm 34, verse 8 and verse 10, it says, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, and blessed is the man who trusts in him. And then in verse 12, it says, The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. And, you know, as we talk about the Lord not withholding good from his people, we also read that the Lord is good. The Lord will not withhold himself from those who come to God to receive more of himself. If, if we as people who have put our faith and trust in Jesus have had the privilege of God giving himself to us, don't we have a good thing? Isn't our lot good? Aren't we holding on to a good thing? Shouldn't that produce a certain measure of excitement? Of, of, of expectation, of anticipation in our hearts? It should. And then the verse that we're all familiar with in Romans 8, 28, it says, for all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his good purpose. 
And so this verse in Romans, it reminds us that not everything that happens to us is good. There are bad things that happen to us. But the sovereignty of God is such that he will overrule the badness of that situation and allow that to produce good in me. It'll produce something in me that will conform me into the image of Christ. I will be made more like him. I'll I'll, I'll glorify God with my life as I surrender to him even the difficult or the bad things that happen to me. So then, what can Satan do to me? What can this world do to me? If God takes even the bad things, the terrible things, the tragic things, and he redeems them and turns them around for his glory in my life, then isn't that a great thing, a wonderful thing? I, I, I had the privilege of being at the pastor's conference recently and heard Zach Adams share. And, and kind of, uh, Zach Adams, if you're not familiar with his story, he got COVID and he was intubated for 63 days. And, and uh, it was really a miracle that he survived that. Everyone, all the doctors were saying he was going to die. I mean, his oxygen levels were like at 52 for a very long time. And, um, and the Lord brought him back and lots of therapy, you know, lots of challenges. Part of the thing that ministered to me from hearing him share is that he spoke of being healed. And then he spoke of how after he was healed, he had to go through months of therapy to get the use of his arms back. I'm like, well, that's not the kind of healing I want. I want a healing where like my arms work back immediately, you know. But healing plus months of therapy and now he's okay. But, but in kind of summing up his whole kind of experience, he said, one of the things that the Lord showed him through this was that his life was given to God for the glory of God. We all, if we've accepted Christ as our Savior, we give him our lives. We give him our body. We give him our all. We sing those songs all the time. And if God would be glorified by me going through a trial and glorifying him through it, doesn't he have the right to allow that? I've, I've surrendered my life to him. Then he can take my life and glorify himself either by healing me and delivering me from that trial, which he so often does, or glorify himself by allowing me to go through it and giving me the strength to endure it in a way that points others to Jesus. I've surrendered my life to him for that purpose. But I, I think of that when I think of this idea of God working together all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his good purpose. God's glory and, and God's purpose for your life is that in eternity, you will have the maximum amount of joy and blessings that you can have. And so then God blesses you with good things on the, in this life. And then God sometimes allows challenging things in this life because as you deal with that in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord, it produces more eternal and long-term blessing in your life. So it's either you get good or you get better. Things from the Lord. And then that should produce in me a joy. We have so many things to be joyful about. We've been given salvation. We've been given everlasting life, the forgiveness of our sins. We have fellowship with other believers, faithfulness in others who have finished their work well. And that always blesses me. When I see somebody who has been a Christian and has been faithful for a long period of time, I'm like, man, this is a, something to be joyful about. I celebrate with them because I know it's cost them something to do it. And we have 
so many of the promises of God given to us in the Bible that we can be joyful about. You know, he, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will complete every work that he begins in you. These are all incredible blessings that we have from the Lord. These are all great reasons for us to be joyful. And heaven is marked by joy. We think of when he says, uh, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Heaven is filled with joy. And that's the desire that the Lord has for our lives. He desires for each one of our lives to be characterized by joy. And if someone was going to come into my life and sum it up, like, hey, well, you know, what's Christopher like? You know, or what's your name like? That that, that would be, well, I don't know, but they have, they have a joy in their life. Even when they go through difficulty, even when they go through hardship, there's joy. There's something different about them. Is my life characterized by joy? Or... Is my life characterized by some other quality? Is my life characterized by anger? Am I an angry person? Is my life characterized by pessimism? Is it characterized by impatience? Am I characterized by being annoyed? I'm an, I'm, you know, it's characterized by annoyance. I'm just always frustrated or annoyed. Is it characterized by gloominess or apathy? Those things are the opposite of joy. And, and at least if, if my life is characterized by those other qualities, at least I ought to come to a place in my life where I admit in my life that I have a problem and that I need the Lord to help me with that problem. And, and so in coming to the Lord and to his word for help, saying, Lord, I don't think this is the quality of life that you desire for me. I don't think this is the kind of person that you're conforming me into. And again, as I kind of go through this teaching, I want you to know this is something that, that gets me. I, I am very attracted to a grumpy, pessimistic, life, sarcastic lifestyle, you know? And, uh, and that's probably my nature and what I gravitate towards, and that's why I hear a message like this, and it, it convicts me, you know? I have to tell you that because something like that might happen. I have to tell you that because you, I couldn't even pretend to not struggle with this. You could just ask my wife. She probably would graciously not say anything, but she, if you were honest, she'd say, well, yeah, sometimes he's grumpy. Sometimes he's not always joyful, you know? So I don't think she would say anything because she's far more gracious to me than I deserve. But Jesus himself desired that joy would be something that would be in us and that joy, our joy would be full, Right? These things I've spoken to that my joy would remain in you and that your joy would be full. So I just kind of thought about that. If Jesus was not, if they, if, if, if Jesus was not a joyful person when his disciples heard that, they would have said, your joy? What are you talking? No thanks. You know, what, your joy? What joy? You know, but they didn't, they didn't debate it. They didn't argue it. They said, oh yeah, wow, you're, you want me to partake of your joy? Your joy to be in me and for my joy to be full? That's an amazing thing. And it's Jesus' desire for us. God desires that each Christian should live a joy-filled life. That's his desire for each one of us as Christians. And, and it's important for us to recognize that because if I've settled into a joyless Christian life and become content with that, then I need to come before the Lord and ask him to forgive me and to help restore me to what his desire is for my life. And so I thought of a couple of verses um, in which joy plays a very important part. Um, and I thought of uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. See, I knew we'd get there eventually. But just for the sake of context, um, looking at this passage, 
Um, the nation of Israel was in a terrible state. Their, their walls had been broken down. They were being regularly raided by their enemies. And they had kind of settled for that kind of life. But by God's grace and mercy, Nehemiah had enough conviction and sensitivity to the things of the Lord that he recognized that the state of affairs in the city of Jerusalem was not what God intended for his people. So he starts praying, Lord, please, they could be living up to such a higher standard than this. This ought to be better for them than what it is. And they've settled for it. And so God opens up a way for him to be a part of the solution. And he goes to Jerusalem, helps them to rebuild the wall. You know, he coordinates the efforts to rebuild the wall. And the next thing that they do is they sit with the Bible and they start reading through the law. This is a book that had, I mean, we have so many Bibles, it's hard for us to just imagine this kind of a thing. But there's several times in Israel's history where they just... No, I mean, imagine a room four or five times the size and no one had ever heard the Bible. No one had ever heard it read. They had a general idea of how they were supposed to live. Maybe like five or six of them had had it read. You know, maybe the priests or the scribes, you know, had heard it. But the general people never heard the Bible. We're so blessed and privileged. We've heard, and most of us have a Bible, you know, sitting in our laps, you know. But they had never, most of them, many of them had never heard the Bible being taught. And so Nehemiah and Ezra, they read through the scriptures, and the Levites are there to help explain these things to the people. And as the people are hearing these things in Nehemiah chapter 8, um, we can read in verse 4, So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for this purpose, and beside him at his right hand stood a bunch of names. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And then all the people answered and said, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And a lot of these other names helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. And so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. And they gave the sense and they help them to understand the, me the reading. I can't think of a better description of the gift of teaching than to read the distinctly from the book, to give the sense, and to help to understand the reading. Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priestess and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people. So, I gotta keep reading it and then I'll explain it. Said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not weep, nor do not mourn, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. So as they're hearing the Bible being taught, as they're hearing their history, as they're hearing creation, as they're hearing um, God's promises to Abraham, as they're hearing about the people being taken into Egypt and the curses and the blessings that were pronounced over them, and they're hearing about the conquests in, the, in Joshua and the failures in Judges and just going through the book and going through the book and their repeated failures. All they can do at that point is just weep because they realize how short they fall. They realize like in one, in one uh, big picture where they're at and what they've done to the Lord and how, how, how distant they've become from their relationship with God. And so they're weeping and weeping, and they're weeping tears of repentance. They're weeping tears of acknowledging their sin and longing to get right with God. And the people that are there, the Levites and the people that are in charge, they recognize 
that this is real repentance. And so then they are able to say to them, guys, this is a holy day to the Lord. You guys are repenting. Let's, let's set aside the weeping in the morning and let's rejoice because God has restored us. I mean, if you think your grandfather, your father has died in Babylon because of his sins and now you're here starting over from scratch and the people are saying, guys, you're starting over. This is a fresh start for you. God is showing you mercy and grace in this. Set aside the weeping. Sanctify yourselves and celebrate the goodness of God. This is a time to celebrate that God has restored you. And they said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet. Drink the sweet and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. Verse 10, for this, is, this day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow, and, and this is the verse I wanted to get to, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Isn't that something? I mean, any opportunity to get any measure of strength, I'll take it. Right? Life is hard. And here he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And, and the reason why I'm kind of driving this home, and I think I have it later uh, in my notes, is that sometimes we view the joy of the Lord as optional. It's like what power windows used to be, you know? Well, you know, I could get the power windows if I want it to be easy, or I can hand crank it, you know? And I could get it if I want it, if I want to, you know, treat myself, you know? If not, I'll just go the old way. But joy is not an optional thing for the believer. It's an essential thing for the believer. And so here he's saying to them that the joy of the Lord is their strength. That word there, joy, is joy, gladness, rejoicing, a joy founded on the feeling of communion with the Lord. It's a joy that comes from knowing that my relationship with the Lord is restored. I'm talking to him. He's talking to me. I'm listening to him. We're walking together. Communion with the Lord on the consciousness that we have a Lord. We have in the Lord a God who is long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. I mean, if you were an idol worshiper in the old days, you never knew what God you would end up with, right? The little, little G gods, the idols that they would serve, they'd be petulant, they'd be uh, terribly selfish, you know, focused on their outraged, you know, and, and, and you'd be, oh man, what do we do? We upset the gods, you know, and there'd be plagues. The real God that we actually worship is long-suffering, is gracious, is merciful and good. That's an incredible reason for joy. Abundant in goodness and truth. This joy, he says, was their strength. This joy was to be to them a strong citadel or refuge because the Almighty is their God. The God that, you're, that you have, your God, is the creator of the heavens and the earth. The all-powerful God. Nothing is too, too great for him. Nothing is so small that he doesn't care. This is the God that we worship. Isn't that a refuge to hide in? A thing to celebrate, even in challenging times. I would hate to go through challenging times if it weren't for the fact that I know that I have hope to go through the struggles and the difficulties. That I, I serve a God that's greater than the problems that I have. That owns the, cattles on a thousand, the cattle on a thousand hills. You know, that, that, can, that can address the struggles and the difficulties of my daily need. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And so Nehemiah tells them, 
to focus on that. And let's go to John chapter 15. And we look at Jesus himself um, speaking about joy and the source of joy for us as believers. In John chapter 15, it never kind of, it hasn't, well, I don't, my memory isn't well enough to be able to tell you that it's never occurred to me, but I think it's never occurred to me before. The context in which Jesus is using this kind of language. Familiar with the passage? I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You were already clean because of the word which I spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. Essentially an exhortation to stay close to the Lord. Now here's what's crazy to me, or what occurred to me this time around. He's in the middle, he's, this is the end of his earthly ministry. He's going to leave this room and go be crucified. So he's saying, stay with me. Stay with me here. Abide in me. And then he leaves. Physically. So what he's asking of them is not physically just stand next to them. He's asking of them something deep, something spiritual, something that they can do even when his physical presence is not there. He says, abide in me. He's going to say, abide in my word, abide in my love. He's going to show them how, what they have to do. But he says to them, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Philip's translation puts it this way. It is the man who shares my life and whose life I share who proves faithful. It's like Jesus saying, share my life and I'll share your life. I just love the way it was, it, was, it was presented there. And he said in verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If I mean, Jesus almost knows how hard it is for us to grasp this thought. If, for, if he were to say, the Father loves you, I'd be like, oh, great. I mean, but not like he loves Jesus, you know, because Jesus is perfect. He never did anything wrong, and he was so great. He was so awesome. He's got to love me like on a lesser level, like, like maybe like, you know, I love hamburgers, you know, he, he, or, or like I love my little pu- puppy, you know, that's the kind of love that he's got for me. No, Jesus says, the same way that the Father loves me, that same love that he has for me, is the same love that he has for you. Abide in my love. It's like I love you deeply, profoundly. I care about you. I listen to you. I mean, I read through the prayers that Jesus would pray in the New Testament, and I don't question whether or not God's going to hear those prayers. Jesus prayed them. I don't question whether or not God's going to answer those prayers. Jesus prayed them. Well, if God the Father loves me as much as he loved him, doesn't that mean he's going to listen to me? He's going to answer my prayers? He might answer, not answer how I want him to, but he'll answer me. <laughs> and in the end, if I love him, I want him to answer the way he wants. I'm not going to ask him, I don't care what you want, answer the way I want. Because then I'm asking for something worse than what he would give me. Because he loves me. He loves me like he loved his son, like he loves his son. 
If you keep his commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So beautiful picture, remaining in Christ, sharing the life of Christ. Well, how do I do that? Keep the commandments of God. As you walk in obedience to the commandments of God, you're going to be sharing in the life of Christ. You're going to be remaining and abiding in the love of God. And then Jesus says, these things I'm telling you right now, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. I'm telling you all of this because I want you to have the joy that I have. The implication is there's quite a bit of joy in the heart of Christ. I want you to have the joy that I have, and I want your joy to be maxed out. So I'm giving you how. And it's through this process of remaining in Christ, remaining in the love of God, walking in obedience to his commandments. And what that does is it builds a relationship. It grows and invests in a relationship. And if you have any kind of relationship... Um, you know, you, you, you have a relationship with your spouse. It is easy to neglect investing in that relationship. You have to be intentional to invest in the relationship. You have to be intentional to take time to spend with them, to listen to them, to not speak when you shouldn't speak, to speak when you should speak. All those things involve investment and time. And if you invest in that, then you grow in your relationship. And the same thing is true of our relationship with the Lord. What happens is this, and it's the same thing that happens with all relationships. When everything is great, it's or not even great, when everything is okay, we tend to stop. We tend to slack off. We tend to take it easy. We tend to talk less. We tend to listen less. We tend to speak when we're supposed to be quiet and be quiet when we're supposed to speak. We tend to get really busy with other things. And then before you realize it, there's a problem in the relationship. And so the same thing happens in our relationship with the Lord. When things are okay, we tend to stop. We tend to stop paying time, spending time with him. We tend to stop reading the Bible or tend to stop praying because there isn't a desperation in our hearts for him. You know, things aren't like they were when we first got saved and we realized that if I don't cling on to Christ for life, I'm going to be dragged down to hell. You know, now we're kind of more comfortable and, all right, so cool, it's still there. Just checking in, okay, everything's good. And then we go about our day. And so if we don't invest in the Lord when things are okay, then when we're in desperate need, we're going to be scrambling because we're trying to make, play catch-up in our relationship with God. But if we abide in his love, if we remain in his presence, the quality of that relationship becomes so great and so strong that there is a depth of joy that becomes our strength to get us through the hard times and the difficulties. That a quality of joy that we could say, man, I am joy-filled in my life. My life is characterized by joy. And I got to say it because it's true that just because somebody laughs or they're loud doesn't mean that their heart's filled with joy. Sometimes people that are loud and that they laugh a lot, they're disguising a lack of joy. And sometimes people that are very quiet and they don't laugh a lot, maybe their hearts are filled with joy. And I'm, you know, I, I can't be biased. Sometimes people that laugh and are loud, they are filled with joy too. So 
and vice versa. Sometimes people that are quiet and look like they just ate a pickle really don't have joy in their hearts. So, you know, make sure that you don't eat pickles before you come to church because you might give people the wrong impression. But this kind of joy that, that Jesus is speaking of is not a joy that is contingent upon our circumstances or upon our, relate, our relationships or our feelings or our circumstances or, or, or what we're going through. This is the kind of joy that comes from our relationship with him. We spend time with him. And you could see it. I mean, you could, you could, you could, if we could all get in a big old line and you could greet one, have like a three-minute conversation with people and you, you'd be able to tell, I don't think this person spent time with Jesus in a while. <laughs> you know? Or, wow, that person just came right out of God's presence. That was amazing. You know, just, just saying hi and, 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 and I could just, there's an overflow of God's peace you know, and joy coming from this person. And so we want to spend this time with, with the Lord, this, invest in this relationship with the Lord. Um, the word there is kara, and it means cheerfulness, a calm delight, gladness, exceedingly joyful. And this is a joy in relationship. Jesus uses these terms of relationship to describe this joy. It's something that you can invest in. And if you invest in it, no one can take it away from you. In John 16, verse 22, he says that your, uh, your joy, no one can take from you. This kind of joy that comes from relationship with Jesus can't be stolen from you. That joy that Jesus speaks of doesn't come because of your circumstances. Uh, it comes because of his words and because of his works, his actions. John 17, verse 13 says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. John 16, verses 20 through 24, it says, Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament when they see what was going to happen to Jesus, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful. But your joy, your sorrow will be turned to joy. A woman, when she's in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish. For the joy of the human being that was born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. And your joy no one can take from you. And in that day you will ask me nothing, but most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now... You have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. It's, a, again, a joy based upon relationship. Um, if, if, my, uh, you know, if my kids spend a certain amount of time with me, they know what I want and what I don't want. They can behave in a certain way and they look over like, oh, you know, I wasn't supposed to do that. You know, or or, or they'll, they'll give the answer that they know I want to hear. And, and, and as you spend time with the Lord, even your prayers will sound like what he wants. Your desires will sound like his desires. And you'll be able to come before the Lord with a genuine heart and say, Lord, can you please do this work in my life or in my family, in my heart? You know, can you please, I pray, Lord, bring this person to salvation. And, and with time, in the Lord's time and way, it's a reflection of the Lord's heart in that prayer. And the Lord will answer it. And then your joy will be full because he's giving you the privilege or the opportunity to participate in the work that he's doing through prayer. It's a great thing that God gives us that opportunity to participate in the work. Um, there are some projects that my, my son, and now sometimes my daughter, as she's like learning to talk, she wants to help sweep the floor. I, I mean, don't tell her this, but she's not really cleaning. 
um, sometimes she's making a bigger mess. But I still let her have the little mop or the little broom and let her, you know, drag it around and stuff. And she feels like she's participating and it makes her happy. And as she gets older, she can learn how to do that better, you know. Or my son wants to work on a woodworking project, but he can't touch any of the tools that you use to cut wood. So it's really me working on a woodworking project. But he's helping to design it, um, and he's participating in it. And it's, it's awesome. It brings me joy to do those things with him. It is so wonderful to be able to do those things with him and to be able to participate. And here when Jesus says, you spend time with me, you're going to get to participate in the work. I, I wonder how many times even as a pastor, you know, assistant pastor, whatever that means, that I, I'm out there doing something and, and I'm just making a mess and the Lord's just picking it up. I'm like, oh, look, Lord, I'm doing something. Isn't this great, you know? I got to use your tools. And it's really just the Lord doing it, and the Lord's grace and the Lord's mercy, the Lord's kindness. Um, it's really just about a relationship. It's about time spent with the Lord. And then, I was about to say finally, but then I looked at the time. Um, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. And another thing that has a part in the joy that we have In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, is this idea of reward or joy in service. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so here Peter just talking about the abundant blessings that we have in Christ. He has shown us abundant mercy. He's brought us back to life, given us a new birth into a living hope by Jesus rising from the dead. He's given us an inheritance that can't get rotten or get destroyed or stolen or fade, and it's saved in heaven for us, who are kept by the power, us who are kept by God's power. Thank God I'm kept by God's power. I have an incredible capacity to mess up or stray away. Man, thank God I am kept by the power of God, right? So he says we're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you are grieved by various trials. So here, and, and I keep reading, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. But you, you see there in verse 6, as he's about to talk about trials, he says, when you think of all the blessings that you have in God, man, you can't help but greatly rejoice, even though now, if need be, you are grieved by various trials. And the, 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 the trials are necessary for the testing of our faith because faith that isn't tested isn't faith. You know, you don't know if it's real or not. 
And I need my faith to be genuine because I want to go to heaven. And I want to have blessings and rewards in heaven. So it gets tested by trials and I have the opportunity to exercise my faith. But even as I go through these challenges or struggles, as I go through the difficulties, I can still rejoice in the blessings and promises that I have in God. If you're going through something that means a lack or or a sickness or a need or a difficulty or a hardship in your life, to know that you have an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God, is an incredible joy. You know? I can't keep my tires from not going flat, but I got a heavenly reward that isn't going to go flat. You know? I, 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 can, I, can, I, I have this reward in the Lord that he's prepared for me, that he's guarding for me, and that he's guarding me for. And so I can greatly rejoice in that. Salvation, eternal life, forgiveness, these rewards. Uh, as he, as he uh, brings us through this, I, I thought of uh, many people who um, expressed joy in their service of the Lord, in the sacrifices that they uh, surrendered up to the Lord, In John chapter 3, verse 29, John the Baptist said, He who has the the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John the Baptist just basically saying, at a time when people were coming to John the Baptist and saying, John, Jesus has got more disciples than you got. I mean, you started off great. Everybody loved you. Everybody was following you. And now, I mean, it's like crickets out here. I know you eat crickets, but, you know, there's nobody here. And Jesus has so many people following him. And John the Baptist says, that's awesome. You have no idea how excited that makes me. Because I'm here on this earth to send people to him. So you know what that means? Is I did my job. I did my job. It's his job to rejoice with the bride. It's not my bride, it's his bride. I get to pass him over to him, and then he gets to celebrate, and then I get to celebrate, because I'm his friend. And and so here in John's faithfulness, in his obedience, in him fulfilling the service and ministry that God called him to, John the Baptist has rejoicing. Here's some awesome verses from Paul about joy. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, and you don't have to go to these. You can if you want to, but you don't have to. There's, there's quite a few of them. Paul said to the Ephesian elders in chapter 20, verse 24, he says, None of these things move me. You know, as Paul was heading down to Jerusalem, everyone was telling him, You know, Paul, you're going to be arrested. You, you know, Paul, you're going to die. He says, None of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself that I might finish my race. But he doesn't stop there. There's plenty of people that finished their race. He says that I might finish my race with joy. I don't want to just finish my race. I want to finish my race well. I want to come to the, you know, through the, 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 the finish line, and I want to be able to celebrate. I made good time. I did it, man. I did it, and I did it well. He doesn't say, I fought the fight. He says, I fought a good fight. <laughs> I ran my race well. I finished the race. I've done it. And so his desire would be to finish his race with joy. Do we have a yearning, a longing in our hearts that the quality of race that we run, of fight that we fight, that at the end of it, we're filled with joy that we did it well? Or, is our, or do we have initiative in everything else except for in our spiritual walk? 
that when it comes to the things of the Lord or to our service to the Lord or, you know, our, our, our walking in obedience to the commandments of the Lord, on that we're mediocre. But at, at our work, man, we are on par. We're doing a great job. But when it comes to things of the Lord, eh, you know, whatever. It's volunteer work. You know, I'll do what I, what, I, what I can afford. Man, I mean, that's the eternal stuff. I mean, do the other stuff well and do this stuff well, you know. You ought to have done both well in such a way that you'll be able to finish your race with joy, that when you stand before the Lord, he's able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now you enter into my joy. Come here, i got to show you something. i got something I've been preparing for you. And I, I thought this was interesting. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul said, the Corinthian, his relationship with the Corinthian church was very different than his relationship with the Philippian church. They were, the Corinthian church, he was always having to defend himself. He was always having to prove himself. He was always having to tell them, uh, to plead for them with his right to speak into their life, which I would personally find fairly annoying. And I'm grateful that I'm not in that situation. But here he says, I'm not trying to express dominion over you and that I'm telling you what you ought to do, but I'm working for your joy. We are fellow workers for your joy. So Paul would say, as an apostle and minister to, the, minister to the church at Corinth, I'm trying to bring joy into your life. I'm working with you for your maximum amount of joy. Don't you want joy? Do I, do I view service and ministry that way? Fellow workers with you for your joy? You know? And, and then he says uh, in chapter 7, verse 4 of 2 Corinthians, Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. Here Paul says, I am so blessed to see your response to the letters that I sent you that even though right now I'm going through an incredible amount of tribulation, my heart is comforted and filled with joy because you are walking in obedience. Those are the unexpected blessings and rewards and comforts and joys that you get from service and ministry. Because you're out there and you're serving and you're sowing seeds. But every once in a while, a little bit of, you get to collect a little bit of harvest. It's like, whoa, it's amazing. Look at that. And it, God is so great that he times it in such a way that it's just when you're like most discouraged or you're going through what, what does he call it, so many tribulations, all our tribulations. He says, you know what, let Paul see a little bit of fruit from his work. And he says, man, I'm comforted. I'm filled with joy. In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, he says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There should be joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And we get so focused on the earthly things or the material things that it would, looks as if God's kingdom would be about eating and drinking, but that's not what it's about. It's about joy in the Holy Spirit. You ever wonder, you know, sometimes there's pastors up front for prayer and there will be after this service and you can come up and pray, for, pray with somebody, for pray, ask for prayer. Yeah, you can come up and pray with somebody for prayer. You pray. But imagine if you were to come up, sometimes you come up, your heart is kind of overwhelmed with joy or overwhelmed with problems or overwhelmed in some way or another. And you come up for prayer and you ask for prayer and it's like, well, would you like me to pray, pray for you for? And she's like, I don't know, just whatever you want to pray for me. Just let's, let's just do a shot in the dark, see if it hits something, you know. And so, and you think, what would Paul pray for? 
You know, if you went up to Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's up front for prayer. He's like, I don't know, Paul, you're so great. Just, just shoot something out there and see what, what sticks. And he had to choose a prayer for you. He would pray this. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a great prayer? I want Paul to pray those things. And he did. He prayed those things for us. So praise the Lord. I'm looking forward to that being fulfilled. But isn't joy important? That Paul would say, may you be filled with all joy. And then lastly, as we kind of look at this uh, thought of, of joy, we can turn a couple of books back to Hebrews chapter 12. A very familiar passage. Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance this race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despising the shame has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So just a couple of quick thoughts as we kind of close. As we go through this race in life, we're not alone. Everyone that's come before you has endured and lived by faith, putting their eyes on the promises of God and trusting him based upon his proven character. They are standing as witnesses to us of God's faithfulness. And you are completely surrounded by their testimony. And then the exhortation to let go of hindrances and obstacles. What baggages are we carrying around? Of our past, of our failures, of the things that we think we could have and should have done better, the things that were just done to us that we had no say in, we're carrying around that kind of baggage. Let's lay that aside. We're running a race. We can't afford to have extra weight. That thing that God is telling you to do, it's, it's important that you do it. If he's telling you to stop something, it's important that you walk in obedience to that. If the Lord is speaking some truth into your life or then you should listen. If the enemy is speaking lies into your life that contradict the truth of Scripture, you should stop listening. It's important that we take captive any thought that tries to exalt itself above the knowledge of Christ and cast down those strongholds, uh, those imaginations. You are going to need endurance to run this race well, and God has set this race before you. And then if we're going to have joy, we're going to need to look to Jesus. The word there, looking, is a far... A f- I shouldn't have tried to pronounce it. It's a Greek word that means to turn the eyes away from other things and to fix them on something. It's to turn your mind to a certain thing. So what are your eyes fixed upon? Are they fixed upon your family or your accomplishments, your education or lack thereof, your willpower or lack thereof? Are your eyes fixed upon your failures or your needs or your wants, your past? He led by example. Our eyes should be fixed upon him. We should look to Jesus, the author, the first to lead our faith. Looking at Jesus, I see that he was faithful, he was diligent, he was exalted, he was tempted, he was humiliated, he was unfairly treated, he was spoken evil against, but he was obedient, and he humbly yielded himself to the sovereign will of God, even unto death. He endured, he remained, tarried behind, 
What am I enduring for Christ's sake? And then Jesus loves you. It says there, for the joy set before him. And that joy is fellowship with you. It's communion with you. You know, I love that song that speaks of Jesus as, I think the lyric goes, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Right? The reward of his suffering is a relationship with us. That's the joy set before him. And so because he wanted that relationship with us, he was eager for that relationship and fellowship to be restored, to have that joy of fellowship and communion. He endured the cross, even though he despised the shame. He didn't want to go through it. And he will complete the work that he has begun in each and every one of our hearts. So as the worship team comes up, my challenge, my question would be for each and every one of us, is my life characterized by joy? Or is my life characterized by something else? And if it's something else, then we should repent. We should come before the Lord and say, Lord, you know, and, and I, and I, and I got to say, not just how, how you characterize your own life. How do other people characterize your life? Because sometimes they're like, I'm fine, you know. And if you ask anybody around me, they're like, he is not fine. <laughs> He's grumpy, complains, you know. He's terrible. Well, maybe, maybe I have some blind spots, you know. But how does the Lord see me? And, and, if, and if the Lord sees anything short of what he expects or desires of us as followers of Christ, as little Jesuses, you know, a little Christ Christian, that's what that means, a little Christ on this earth, then maybe I should realign myself to the standard. I should look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. And how, is, how is my relationship with Jesus affecting my marriage and how I treat my wife or how I treat my kids? Or how I behave in the workplace or my work ethic? How is my relationship with Jesus affecting my private life or what I look at on my phone or my computer? How is my relationship? Do I look like Jesus when I, uh, you know, choose somebody out or when I drive through the city of Miami? You know, am I, am I looking like Jesus would look if he was driving through the city of Miami? <laughs> you know? Um, because the way Jesus would look would be a life that's filled with joy. And people would see him and say, I want what he's got. I don't know what's going on. He's, there was times when Jesus wept. There was times when Jesus went through sorrow. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But man, when children saw him, they couldn't, they'd say, oh, I want to I go run up to him and hug him. And you know, that's not a grumpy person. You know, kids don't want to hang out with grumpy people. You know, but they, they just saw the joy coming from him. And do people see the joy coming from us? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us, Lord, to realign ourselves if it's necessary, if it's necessary. Um, Lord, to realign ourselves to the standard. Lord, I don't want to live a miserable, apathetic, grumpy, um, pessimistic life. I want to be filled with joy and peace. Lord, I want to be filled with gratitude. And I pray, Lord, that you would transform us by the renewing of our mind. I pray, Lord, that you would accept the offering of our surrender and change us, Lord, from the inside out. God, if there's anyone here that would benefit from praying with someone about that, Lord, I pray that they would not be afraid to come up and ask for prayer. Uh, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.